You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. I sense the Lord's presence this morning in the praises of His people. His Word promises us that He inhabits the praises of His people. When His people praise Him, He shows up. That's all it says. That's all it means. John chapter 6, two verses. Verse 28 and 29 is all. How many verses I start with doesn't mean a whole lot. But I like to give you hope at the beginning at least. Verses 28 and 29. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. This week, once again, for the third week in a row, I tried to get into the sixth chapter of John to finish the sixth chapter of John because we had begun a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. Several weeks ago, we, I preached on the first 14 verses where Jesus fed the 5,000, and I've been trying to finish the chapter for the, almost a month now, and the Lord has not allowed me to do it. Every week I've been diverted into something else, and so I came back, as stubborn as I am, Monday morning, to start again on the sixth chapter of John. Lord, I'm going to get through it this week. And again, he did not allow me to get through it. I've had a hard time with that, and not because it's a difficult passage so much, just as because I think that that's really not where the Lord wants us to go for a while. But I did start in the sixth chapter of John verses 28 and 29. So I just picked out a couple of verses, and that may be all we do with the rest of the sixth chapter. Uh, It may not be, but at least that's all we're going to do today. And then we're going to launch into some things in the very opening chapters of the Gospel of John that we've already covered, but look at them in a different way. This week, the Lord convicted me about something that has to do with these two verses in a way that I've not been convicted in a long time about many things, By the time the week was over with, I felt like I had been beat to death with a ball-peen hammer because God has convicted me to the bottom of my soul this week about what I'm going to preach to you this morning. I'm not just preaching to you. I am preaching to me because this is what God is doing in my life. And those of you that know, have been heard very much preaching, you know that usually what a preacher preaches is what God is preaching to him first, and then you just get the overflow of that, and this is exactly what God has been preaching to me. I want to ask you the question, based on those two verses of Scripture, if you know the difference between working for God and doing the work of God. Working for God and doing the work of God. Most of us, and I think that most of what goes on in the context of the church is working for God, but I'm not sure that it is always the work of God. 
working for God as opposed to doing the work of God. I'm struck, and I thought about this this week, I'm struck by the fact that I do not remember a command where we are commanded to work for God in the Scripture. I don't find any place, I don't remember any place where we are commanded to work for God. But we use that terminology an awful lot, don't we? Well, what do you, when, you, when you witness, what are you doing? Well, I'm working for God. Well, when you, when you study the Bible, when you, when you teach, when you preach, when you uh, serve in the nursery, what are you doing? Well, you're working for God. That's the phrase that we often use. And I wonder if we understand what it really means to do the work of God. We do so much work for God. I wonder if we really understand what it means to do the work of God. As I thought about this, the distinction this week, it came to my mind that that really is an insult to God. If I say I'm working for God... That is an insult to God. Why? How audacious it would be of me to think that God would need me to do anything for him. <laughs> think about that. He who spoke and created the heavens and the earth, that he would need me to do something for him. How ludicrous is that? It's an insult to God when I say that I am working for God. Listen, we are called to do the work of God, but we are not called to work for God. We are called to do the work of God. And what is the work of God? The work of God is God working through us. That's it. It's God at work. Like you see the sign says, men at work. It's God at work. The work of God is not me working for God. The work of God is God working, and I just happen to be a vessel that he does it through. That's what we're commanded to be, in the Word of God. Now, as I said, the difference is very clear. Let me say this again because I think it's important. Everything else I say is going to be on this, built on this foundation. The difference between working for God and doing the work of God is work for God is what man thinks God would want done, so he goes out and does it. That's working for God. It's what I deem that I think God would like to get done, and so I go out and do it, and I'm working for God. With or without his blessing, I'm doing it. I'm going to get it done. The work of God is when God decides there's something that needs to be done and he finds a vessel that is submitted to him and he does the work. That is the work of God and that's all that we are commanded ever to see happen in the kingdom is not working for God, but the work of God being done through us. Now, if that's going to happen, there are some things that are going to have to take place. God only does his work through prepared vessels, right? He only is going to perform his work through vessels that are prepared to be used for work. For instance, last week I preached about the glory of God. And when the glory of God came upon the tabernacle, it was because the tabernacle had been constructed. Remember that phrase? Say it with me. Who was that? There was one person that was awake last week. How was the tabernacle constructed just as the Lord commanded. And through those chapters, we looked at that. God had given specific, detailed, nuts and bolts kinds of instructions about how that tabernacle was to be constructed. And it was not until the people constructed the tabernacle just as the Lord commanded that the closing verses of Exodus says, the glory of God descended upon that tabernacle and God dwelt in the midst of his people. You see, if they had not done it just as the Lord commanded, the glory of God would have never descended upon the tabernacle. So God only uses a prepared vessel that is prepared just as the Lord commanded. 
So some things are going to have to happen if the work of God is going to be accomplished rather than all this work for God that we're so prone to want to do. Today, I want to answer the Jews' questions, the, the Jews' question that they ask of Jesus. What must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus' answer, he indicated you can't. In his answer, he indicated you cannot work the works of God. Jesus said this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that indicates to me that Jesus is saying, if you want to do something, the only thing you can do is believe. If you believe in the one whom he has sent, the indication is he will work through you. Did you get that? What must me do to work the works of God? Jesus says the only work that can be accomplished is to believe in him whom he has sent, and then the Father does the work that he desires to do through that vessel. Now, Jesus obviously was the supreme example of the work of God, right? As I look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, I never get an indication that Jesus worked for God about what God wanted done, and then going and trying to do it. <laughs> that wasn't the way Jesus operated. But Jesus certainly did the work of God, right? He did the work of God. He didn't work for God. And listen, the work that Jesus did is the work that we are to do. Now let me say that again. The work that Jesus did is the work that we are to do. What work did Jesus do? He did the work of God, didn't he? God working through this vessel. God working through his son. God working through the one who was God in the flesh, doing the work that God desired to do. The work that Jesus did is the work that we are to do. It is the work of God. Let me illustrate. His relationship to the Father is the relationship that we have to him. Jesus said it over and over. The relationship that Jesus had to the Father that allowed him to do the work of the Father is the very same relationship the Scripture says that we have to Jesus Christ, and if we have it to him, then we have it to the Father, for he and the Father are one. Right? And he had with you. Folks, this is going to be hard if you don't help me. At least let me know you're alive. At least let me know your heart is beating. Uh, I could preach to the screen and get about as much response. Now, I'm not wanting you to pump me up by just saying amen. I'm just wanting you to affirm that what is being said is the truth, if it is the truth. I mean, it ain't. Let's all go on. The work of God. The relationship that Jesus has to the Father and had to the Father in his earthly dwelling is the relationship that we are to have to him. Therefore, we have that relationship to the Father. Amen. All right, let me, hear you, let me tell you what Jesus said about that. John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says many things. There are three that I want to pull out. Jesus, in this high priestly prayer, praying to the Father in behalf of the disciples and all those who would follow them, said this in verse 8. He said, Father, the words that you have given me, I gave them. Did you hear that? What words do we have then? We have the words of the Father, don't we? Jesus said, the words, Father, that you spoke to me, I spoke to them. They have your words. Then Jesus went on and said in the 17th chapter, verse 22, he said, Father, the glory you gave me, I gave them. What glory do we have? The glory of the Father, right? Given through the Son. The words, Father, you gave me, I gave them. We have the words of the Father. The glory, Father, you gave me, I gave them. We have the glory of the Father. But that's not all. 
Verse 18 of chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus said, Father, as you sent me, I've sent you. I've sent them. If Jesus has sent us, the Father sent him, then who have we been sent by? The Father. The very same relationship that Jesus had to the Father, you and I have. The work that Jesus did is the work that we are to do because we are in that same relationship that Jesus was with the Father. And his relationship to the Father is what allowed Jesus to do the work of God, not work for God. It was that intimate communion with the Father, that oneness with the Father, that allowed Jesus to be the vessel through whom the Father did his work. And as we enter into that same relationship and become that vessel, then what's going to happen somewhere along the road? We're going to quit working for God, and we're going to be that vessel through whom God does his work. But we must be prepared vessels. Now, I've spoken in somewhat veiled terms so far, so let me get down to specifics. What was it about the life of Jesus? I want to pull out three things out of the Gospel of John that we've already studied thus far in the first five or six verses, chapters of the Gospel that characterized the life of Jesus that enabled him to do perfectly the work of God, okay? And show you how that is the same relationship we are to have. First of all, what enabled Jesus to do the work of God and not work for God was that he was born of God. He was born of God. Now, John chapter 1, verse 14 Speaking of the Word, which we know is Jesus, because in verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, he clarifies for us who the Word was when he says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what does it say of Jesus? It says that Jesus was begotten of God, of God. Now, Jesus was born of God through that virgin birth, right? You want to know why it is important that we, that we understand and that we affirm and that we believe the, the virgin birth, as many liberals around us deny? Because everything that we stand for, everything that we believe, everything that allows Jesus to be the Savior, everything that allows Jesus to be the atonement for our sin, depends upon the fact that he did not have a human father, but that his father was the father of all through the Holy Spirit, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was born of God by this miraculous virgin birth. He was begotten of God. And because of that, Jesus was the perfect union of the human and the divine, right? He was fully divine. He was fully human. Do I understand that? No, but it is true. He was not born with a sin nature, but he was yet fully human as you and I are. He grew hungry. He grew weary. He had to have sleep. He was fully human. He was all of man, and he was all of God. And in Jesus, perfect man and perfect God came together. Now, that's who Jesus was in relation to God. He was born of God. This special, miraculous virgin birth that married the human and the divine. But what about man? We'll go back to creation. Go back to creation. And in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, God makes a divine declaration about his purpose for man. And by man, I'm using the term generically of creation, man and woman. In chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26, he says, Let us make them, make man, how? 
in our image, in our likeness, and to let him rule over the earth. Now, God's making a divine declaration of his purpose for man, that we should be made in his image and that we should have dominion, that we should have rule over the earth. Now, what is he saying? That we are to be in his image and that we are to have dominion or rule over the earth. This is what he is saying, that God is saying that through this creation, I want this creation to be an extension of my very presence upon earth. I want this creation to be an expression of my very personality on earth. That is the image and the likeness of God. And through this creation, I desire to exhibit my power on earth. They will rule and dominate over the earth. Do you understand that? That was God's purpose, that in his image and with rule over the earth, that we should be an expression of his personality, an extension of his nature and his very character and of his presence on the earth, and an exhibit of his divine sovereign power over the earth as we rule with delegated authority over what God had created. What happened? Man fell in sin, right? And at that point, the image, the perfect image of God was marred. But did the father quit? No. His purpose was never set aside, was it? At the point when Adam and Eve fell, did God say, whoops, blew it, forget it, forget that purpose, it's going to plan B. God's purpose has always been the same, isn't it? His purpose is that we be what? An extension of his presence, an expression of his personality, and an exhibit of his power. That's who we are as his creation. But with the image of God marred as it is in sin and as it was in sin, we couldn't be that, right? But God didn't set aside his purpose, did he? What did he do? He pursued man, didn't he? He pursued man with a divine plan of salvation. He pursued man with that perfect sacrifice in his son, who was Jesus, came to do what the first Adam never did, right? He exemplified perfectly the presence of God. He exemplified perfectly the personality of God. He exemplified perfectly the power of God upon earth. He accomplished fully what Adam never accomplished because Adam fell. And so he was that full extension of power, presence, and personality. And listen, Jesus demonstrated God's purpose for creation. You and I. Let me say that again. Jesus demonstrated what God intended us to be. What was what? What Adam was intended to be. The presence of God on the earth. The personality of God on the earth. The exhibit of the power of God on the earth as Adam was given rule and dominion over the earth. Delegated authority by God. And so through Jesus, when he came, he came to exemplify what God intends for you and I to be. How? Through that perfect union of human and divine. Stay with me, folks. I know that we're digging deep here, but we're going to come out of it in a minute. If you'll just stay with me, you'll understand why all of this is so vitally important to doing the work of God. He perfectly demonstrated what no man had ever done. And it is God's express purpose that we be like Jesus. What does that mean? If Jesus was the expression of the presence of God on the earth, what are we to be? The expression of the presence of God on the earth. If Jesus was 
a, a presentation of the personality of God on the earth, what are we to be? An expression of the personality of God on the earth. If Jesus was an exhibit of the power of God on the earth, then what are we to be? An exhibit of the power of God. We are to be like Jesus. The image of God is restored through faith in Jesus, right? Jesus came and did what the second Adam, the first Adam never did. Jesus came to restore what God originally intended for us to be that, that failed through sin. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ that the image of God, the personality of God, the presence of God, and yes, the power of God is restored in the people of God. I don't know. Maybe you're not understanding what I'm saying. And Jesus, listen, salvation is the plan by which that happens. As Jesus was born of God and therefore was able to accomplish the work of God, you and I are only able to accomplish the work of God when we are born of God. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, what did he do? He predestined. What did he predestine? He predestined that we be conformed to the image of his Son. Image, there's that word image. Genesis 1, 26, create them in our image. What image? Jesus, image. Well, what image was Jesus in? Jesus was the perfect image of the Father. Everything that the first Adam never was. Jesus perfectly expressed the image of God. If we are being conformed into that image, then whose image are we being conformed into? The image of the Father. If being born of God and in the image of the Father allow Jesus to do the work of God and not have to work for God, then that means in salvation the way is open for us to be doing the work of God and not having to do the work for God. I don't know about you, but work for God tires me out. It makes me extremely tired, and that's why I'm tired a lot of the times, because I wind up doing work for God a lot of times and not allowing the work of God to be accomplished. But that's where it begins. Now, let me ask you this in question, this important question, this foundational question, are you born of God? Have you settled that issue? I don't mean baptized. I don't mean a church member. I don't mean a good guy or a good girl. I mean born from above. Born of God. Changed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, is that what it is? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new Christ. Behold, all things have become new. Born of God. John 3, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what else you can't do? You can't do the work of God. You can do lots of work for God, but you will never see the work of God being accomplished. So Jesus was born of God. And so he accomplished the work of God. That's where it begins. Second, Jesus was committed exclusively, and I thought through these words very carefully. Jesus was committed exclusively to be an extension of the will of God. He was born of God. He was committed exclusively 
exclusively to be an extension of the will of God. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, the disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And listen, what? To accomplish whose work? His work, right? But look what he said before that. My food is to do the will. Not my will, not my work, his will, and to accomplish whose work? His work. Now let me give you the context of that verse of Scripture. Jesus was ministering in Samaria. He was ministering to the woman at the well who had been married five times and was living with a man that she was currently not married with, and Jesus miraculously interpreted all of that for her and blew her socks off, right? The disciples, in the meantime, have gone into Samaria to get some food because they've been road-weary and they're hungry, and Jesus' human nature is saying, feed me, and so they're hungry. So while they're gone, Jesus is at the well, and he's ministering to the woman at the well. Well, you know, she's recognized who this guy is by this time. I mean, this, you must truly be the son of God. I mean, you, you must be a prophet. You couldn't say all these things unless you were. So she runs into town to tell everybody to come check this guy out. And while she's in, way in town, the disciples come back. And they have been to McDonald's, and they brought back some Big Macs and fries. And they said to Jesus, they said, Rabbi, eat. Well, Jesus responds with this verse of Scripture. He says, I have food you know nothing about. And immediately their response is, would somebody bring him food? You know, I mean, you know, they're so locked into the physical that they can't think in spiritual terms. And Jesus said, I have food that you know nothing about. What food is that, Jesus? My food is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, this is what gives me joy. This is what gives me nourishment. This is what brings fulfillment to my very being, my very existence, is not eating physical food, but doing the work of God, accomplishing the will of God, and being extension of the will of God upon the earth. Why was that so fulfilling for Jesus here? Because Jesus had answered the question of why he was here. That was why he was here. That and that alone. Jesus was on earth to be an extension of the will of God. And so Jesus was completely, exclusively committed to being an extension of the will of God. If that was his purpose, then he was going to accomplish that purpose. He was going to be that extension of the will of God. His whole life. Now listen, his whole life was focused on that purpose. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you settled the question of your purpose? Let me ask that again. Have you settled the question of your purpose of why you are here? Let me give you some alternatives. Are you here to become wealthy? Are you here to build a great business? Are you here to build a successful career? Are you here on earth to win friends and influence people or any 
on my list that are activities in people's lives and are driving forces in your life. Have you settled the question, are any of these things your purpose for being here? Let me give you a scenario of what happens when any of these things become our purpose in life. This is what happens. If you do not achieve that purpose that somehow has become a driving force in your life, if you do not achieve that purpose, what happens? You become disappointed and disillusioned with life. Now, how many Christians does that bring to your mind? Who basically are going through the motions and the movements and really at the root level are just kind of disappointed with life. Because you see, if any of these things become your driving force in life and if they are not achieved and they are never fully achieved, then what happens is you become disillusioned and disappointed with life. They begin to short-circuit the purpose of God. Now, folks, none of these things are bad. I know some fine, wealthy people. A few. I know some fine Christians who have very successful businesses, who have some very successful careers. There is nothing wrong with any of these things in and of themselves. But when they become the driving force of life, what happens? They short-circuit God's ultimate purpose for life, which is to be an extension of the will of God on this earth. Our real purpose, the main thing, and we have a hard time making the main thing the main But our real purpose is to do the will of God. Now, I doubt if I took a poll of you who are genuinely born again here today, and I by no means assume that that's all of you, but if I took a poll of those who have been born of God who are here this morning, I would imagine 100% of you would say, my purpose is to do the will of God. But I think then that if I were to follow you around for a week, I would have a difficult time coming to the same conclusion. Because you see, we speak the word with our mouth because we know that it's supposed to be true, but then with our lives, we deny the truth of it. We get involved in these other driving forces that in and of themselves are not bad, but they short-circuit the ultimate purpose of God, which is to be an extension of the will and the purpose of God in this earth. I'm struck by the fact that Jesus was never disappointed. Why was Jesus never disappointed? Because Jesus never expected anything but to accomplish the will of God. That's it. He never expected anything but to accomplish the will of God. He had completely settled the question that his purpose was to be an extension of the will of God. And because of that, God's work was accomplished through Jesus. 
Now listen, as long as being wealthier, winning friends and influencing people or building a great business or building a great career or building a great family or all those, as long as those things are short-circuiting God's main thing for you, you're not going to do the work of God. And the work of God is not going to be accomplished through you. You may work for God, but you're never going to see the work of God being done. It isn't going to happen. As long as your purpose is short-circuited by diversionary tactics of the world and of the enemy. I'd like you to do something this afternoon, if you would. Take a, take a survey of the priorities in your life. Take a survey of the things you spend most of your time involved with. In, after you've taken the survey, find out and rank it to find out where the will of God accomplishing and being a part of the will of God falls in that level of priorities and you will discover whether the work of God is being done in your life or if you're just working for God. You see, Jesus saw the work of God because he was born of God, but he was because he was committed exclusively to be an extension of the will of God and finally, let me do this because all of this I've said I wanted to say to get to this. The third thing, Jesus saw physical problems through spiritual eyes. Let me say that again. Jesus saw physical problems, physical circumstances through spiritual eyes. John 5, 19, there's an incredible verse that I've read over for years, and this week it, it came alive to me. John 5, 19, listen to what Jesus said. It is an incredible statement. Therefore, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, listen, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Now, the part I want you to key on is not that, that the Son can do nothing of himself, but... He can't do anything, he says, that he does not, first of all, see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus said, I do nothing, I can do nothing, I never do anything that I don't, first of all, see the Father doing. And what I see the Father doing, then that's what I do. And the work of God is accomplished because it is God's work. The Father has shown himself doing it first. And so when I see the Father doing it, then I know that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I go and I do it. And the work of God is done. Jesus somehow looked over into the other realm of the spiritual realm and saw what the Father was doing and he imitated what he saw the Father doing. So when Jesus faced a problem, what did he do? Jesus looked at the circumstance, not with his physical eyes, but with his spiritual eyes to see what the Father was doing. And how the Father wanted to deal with that and what the Father wanted to do with that. And that's what Jesus did when he saw the Father doing it. And Jesus didn't do anything that he didn't see the Father doing. Now, let me explain this. If you are a Christian, you live in two realms. You live in the realm of the physical and you live in the realm of the spiritual. Jesus also did. He lived in the realm of the physical he had physical senses, and he lived in the realm of the spiritual. Jesus had physical eyes, 
he had spiritualized. Jesus had physical senses. Jesus had spiritual senses. Now listen, when you were born physically, you are born with physical senses. You're born with physical ears. You're born with physical eyes. What do you do with those senses? You respond to the physical world, don't you? That is how you respond to the physical world around you is with your physical senses. But when you trust Christ, when you are born of God, the scripture says that you receive another set of senses and they are spiritual senses. And with these spiritual senses is how you respond to the spiritual world. Jesus over and over again, as he would teach, he would make the statement, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. That sounds like a funny statement, doesn't it? If you're in that crowd that day and you don't know anything about spiritual things and you hear Jesus say this, all right, all you've got ears to hear out there, now listen up. Is Jesus talking about physical ears? Did he look out there and say, now some of you got ears, some don't, so the ones who got ears, listen up, because I'm about to say something. Probably some of them thought that's what he was saying because they were so locked into the physical. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. He was saying, listen, there are some of you that have spiritual senses and some of you don't. So you folks that have got spiritual ears, listen up, because I'm about to say something that's real important for you to hear. And Jesus acknowledged that all people have physical senses, but not everybody has spiritual senses. All people have physical ears unless there's been a... Not everybody has spiritual ears to hear. And so as Jesus spoke, he would acknowledge that. And he'd say, you guys have got spiritual ears, listen up. And with those spiritual ears, because I want to say something that's very, very important. When you trust Christ, you receive spiritual senses. Now, just as your physical senses had to mature in order for you to respond to the physical world, so also your spiritual senses must mature in order to respond to the spiritual world, right? One of the things that was fascinating to us with each of our children was when they were born to watch how their eyes worked. Do you remember that? For the first few weeks or even the first few months, you, it's, it's, it's funny, we used to lie. You run your hand in front of them and it's like slow motion. Your hand's already over here and then the eyes start doing this number. And then, you know, five minutes later, they finally get over there. I mean, and you just kind of have to, you know, you move it real slow and then they can follow you. Why is that? Because their physical eyes are not yet matured, are they? But with time, as they continue to work and exercise those eyes and use them more, the muscles strengthen, they're able to, and then with time, they never, never miss anything. Everything that goes on around them, they pick up on it because their physical senses have matured. It is the same thing with the spiritual realm. We must develop the spiritual senses through practice, worship, prayer, meditation is word. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. Now listen, there will always be one realm that will dominate your life. You will either be dominated by your physical senses and the physical world, or you will be dominated by your spiritual senses and the spiritual world around and the one that dominates your life will be the one whose senses you have developed the most. If you are fully cued into the physical world and responding with physical senses, then when you face a situation, you will see it with physical eyes. If you have practiced, if you have matured, if you have exercised discipline with your spiritual senses, then you will come to a point, you will grow to the point of seeing the physical realm through spiritual eyes, and that's exactly what Jesus did. There's an illustration in the sixth chapter. 
Jesus was teaching a crowd of some 5,000, which was probably just men. They numbered the men, and the women and children were not numbered, so it may have been a crowd of as many as 15 or 20,000 people that were there that day. Jesus had been teaching them all day long. It's the end of the day, and they're hungry. Jesus knows that. That's the physical problem. That's the physical circumstances. I got this crowd of 15 or 20 people, been teaching them all day, and now they're hungry. Jesus looked at the physical situation. Now stay with me. Jesus looked at the physical situation, but knew something that the disciples didn't know. He knew that the Father never allows a physical problem that he has not also provided a spiritual solution. And so what Jesus did was he looked over into the other realm with his spiritual eyes and he saw what the Father was doing. When Jesus faced the physical circumstance of 15 or 20,000 people who are hungry and there's no food to feed them, he did not respond with despair. He did not respond with frustration and with panic. He looked over into the spiritual realm to see what the Father was doing. And you know what he saw the Father doing? Miraculously feeding the crowd. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus responded to his spiritual senses and he did what he saw the Father doing. He fed the 5,000 that day. That's not how the disciples responded, though. You remember the story? Andrew, our first Peter, Philip, <laughs> I'm not kidding in a minute. Philip comes along, Jesus is going to test him, it says. And he says to Philip, he says, where are we going to get food to feed this many people? And Philip responds with the accountant's mentality. He says, well, Lord, if we had 200 denarii, no offense, <laughs> you accountant, but he started, got a calculator. He said, if we had 200 denarii, which would be basically one year's full wage for a man, if we had 200 feet, all of these people, what did Philip do? He looked at the physical circumstance with physical eyes and came to the conclusion it can't be done. So Philip failed the test that Jesus gave. Andrew comes along and almost does a better job. Andrew brings a little boy that has five loaves and two fishes. And he says, Lord... We have here five loaves and two fishes. Now, if Andrew had shut up right there, he would have done fine. That would have been great. But he didn't, did he? He kept on. He said, Lord, we got five loaves and a couple of fishes here, but what are these among so many? And that's where he blew it. He looked at the physical circumstance with physical eyes, the physical resources, and he said, there isn't enough to do it. He was so dominated by the physical, like so many of us, listen, he did not accomplish the work of God. Do you see what I'm saying? For the work of God to be accomplished, we must respond with physical senses to circumstances, to lie, to problems, to joys, to victories, to everything, to develop our spiritual senses to be able to look over and see what the Father is doing and do what the Father is doing. And that is exactly what Jesus did. I want to make a confession to you. As I said at the very beginning, and I'll wrap it up. The Lord hit me very hard this week with this because I have to be honest with you. For much of my Christian life, I have worked 
for God. But I don't know but a few times that I can really say I accomplished the work of God. And of all of the things that the Lord has been trying to teach me in the past year, and you know there have been things that have been going on in my life, and there's been tremendous spiritual battle taking place in my life because the Father is wanting to teach me, and the enemy does not want me to be taught. And so there's been this continual spiritual battle that has been taking place. And any time you step out of your comfort zone spiritually and you begin to want to move forward and go with God and grow, the enemy of your soul is going to come against you. And if you're living at ease, it's probably because you're not growing. In the past year, God, through his grace, just made a decision. He said, James, I'm not going to leave you where you are anymore. And he kicked me out of my comfort zone and began to bruise me and beat me and batter me and crush me in order that he might teach me. And the enemy has come and has tried to destroy that work of God. And I came to the conclusion this week because I've asked the Lord, Lord, what are you trying to do? All of the things that God has been teaching me about prayer, all of the things he has been teaching me about my authority of my position in Christ, all of the things he has been teaching me about spiritual warfare, about doing war in the heavenly places against principalities and powers and dominions, which is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. All of that stuff that the Father has been teaching me about that is ultimately that he might teach me this. I'm convinced of that, that he might teach me to see with spiritual senses, not my physical senses, because I am as guilty and perhaps more guilty than you are to responding to the physical world with physical senses. And frustration and despair and anxiety is always the result. 